0: I'm Carol Coletta, and this is Night Cities. Joe Courtright is a close observer of trends in cities. As principal of the Portland-based firm Impresa Consulting, Joe has produced many groundbreaking reports on what's happening in cities and why, and has brought new understanding to issues such as talent migration, the value of college graduates to cities, and the economic impact of less driving and car ownership. His recent report on neighborhood change upends the conventional narrative about gentrification in U.S. cities. Joe, you've done this remarkable report that looks at what's happened in America's high poverty neighborhoods over the past 40 years, and the results are stunning. What did you find?
1: Well, what we did is we looked at the neighborhoods that had the highest rates of poverty in urban areas, in the 50 largest metropolitan areas. Uh, starting in 1970, uh, and our definition was to look at neighborhoods where the poverty rate was at least double the national average, so uh, 30% or higher, as opposed to the national average of about 15%. What we found is, in 1970, that there were about 1,100 such neighborhoods in the United States, and we tracked what happened to those 1,100 neighborhoods over the following four decades. And the most important thing we found was uh, a pattern of persistence that about three quarters of those neighborhoods remained high poverty neighborhoods 40 years later. And I think contrary to a, a common misunderstanding, those neighborhoods didn't, even though they stayed high poverty, didn't say the same. They weren't stable. In fact, they lost about 40% of their population over that four-decade period. Now, some neighborhoods did see a decline in poverty, but it was only about 100 of those neighborhoods that saw the poverty rate decline from above the national average, that that is above 30%, to the national average or below, that is less than 15%. And in all, uh, if you lived in a high-poverty neighborhood in 1970, the chances that 40 years later, that your high poverty neighborhood had fallen to below the national average level of poverty was less than 5%.
0: Which is depressing and so surprising given the amount of attention that gentrification gets in the national press when it comes to cities and uh, revitalization. Is there anything you could identify about those 100 neighborhoods of the 1100 high poverty neighborhoods, the 100 that actually did make significant improvements in terms of the poverty rate? Was there any distinguishing characteristic or set of characteristics about those uh, neighborhoods?
1: Well, those neighborhoods that that, um, saw big reductions in poverty, what we call the rebounding neighborhoods, had one striking characteristic, which is that they gained population. So collectively, those 100 or so neighborhoods had about 30% more residents in 2010 than they did uh, in 1970. So what this signals, I think, about the nature of neighborhood change for poor neighborhoods is there's sort of an up or out dynamic Neighborhoods that don't improve see their populations decline, and neighborhoods that see a reduction in the poverty rate actually gain population. So it's not a one-for-one one displacement of population when neighborhoods change. It is frequently the case that uh, either they don't get better and they lose po- people or they improve and they attract additional population to the neighborhood.
0: And And it is the attraction of the additional population that, in fact, changes the poverty rate. We don't know much about the people who started in poverty and where they ended up, correct?
1: Yeah, we don't have a really good way of tracking those people in 1970 and where they are today. And in fact, we know many of them still are not still living. Uh, We know that there's a constant state of neighborhood change. So really, all we can do is take snapshots at different points in time of the poverty rate. And we do know that in those rebounding neighborhoods there are numerically fewer poor people so the number of people in poverty declines and that's undoubtedly some combination of the people who move in and out of the neighborhood as well as uh, an improvement in the living conditions for some long-term residents
0: we also know joe that and i think again in some ways this is surprising until you really think about it we know that poor people tend to have more opportunities, do better economically when they live in places with people who have more education. Is that a fair statement?
1: As bad as it is to be poor, and there's no question about that, it, there are huge disadvantages from being poor. If you live in a place where most of your neighbors are poor, in neighborhoods of concentrated poverty, it makes all of the aspects of poverty even worse. And it makes it harder for people to escape poverty. So. High poverty neighborhoods, we know, tend to perpetuate and worsen poverty. And so the more that we can do to reduce these concentrations of poverty, the better off, um, uh, the better the chances for moving people out of poverty.
0: Why is that the case?
1: Well, it, it, there are a whole number of reasons. One, um, the, economically and fiscally, there are fewer jobs and fewer tax resources. Uh, politically poor neighborhoods let, have less pull and less civic activism and less uh, ability to influence policy in a favorable way. There are fewer social networks and role models that help people connect to jobs and educational opportunities and improve their lives so it, it's it's really a combination of different things, all of which work together to make it just tougher in poor neighborhoods. And I shouldn't leave out the fact that crime tends to be much higher in neighborhoods of concentrated poverty, and crime appears to have an independent and additional negative effect in these neighborhoods of concentrated poverty.
0: The other thing you found, in addition to the fact that so few neighborhoods improved from high poverty to less than the average poverty, if you will. You found that a lot more neighborhoods since 1970, in those 40 years, uh, have moved from below poverty to now double the average poverty rate. Talk about what you found there.
1: Right. In 1970, again, there were were about 1,100 census tracts or neighborhoods that had poverty rates of 30 percent or higher in large urban areas. Today, there are more than 3,000 census tracts, neighborhoods, that have those that high level of poverty. And what that means is, while we've made very modest progress in reversing concentrated poverty in the places that had it 40 years ago, we've essentially tripled the total number of neighborhoods of concentrated poverty. In 1970, of, of the four living in these large metropolitan areas, about 28% of them lived in a high poverty, concentrated poverty neighborhood today. Uh, it's more than 42 percent of the poor live in those concentrated poverty neighborhoods. And what that tells us is that far from gentrification, sweeping away poor neighborhoods, concentrated poverty is growing worse um, in, in large metropolitan areas.
0: Joe, how do you square those findings with what most of us perceive as cities all over America revitalizing and consumer demand for urban living coming back strong?
1: I, I think it's it's partly an issue of perception. We notice uh, when neighborhoods change, when things get dramatically different, and particularly when there's new construction, um, it's obvious that things are changing. But in most neighborhoods, what we see is a slow and uh, steady erosion of neighborhood quality of property values and so on. And you don't notice that from one year to the next, but over 40 years, we do see profound changes in neighborhoods. And we saw a lot of what we called falling stars Neighborhoods that in 1970 had poverty rates that were below the national average that today, 40 years later, have poverty rates that are more than double the national average. And I I think that's the sort of thing that because it's happening so slowly, um, most people don't even notice it. Not many of us can sort of cast our minds back to see what all these neighborhoods looked like in 1970. But with the help of data, that's what we were able to do.
0: You've produced maps for most of the top 50 or the largest 50 metropolitan areas in the country uh, that I think you've posted at ImprezaConsulting.com, is that right?
1: We're in the process of posting them to the to the website and uh, they will be available soon.
0: Eager to see those. As I recall, when I looked at the, the early maps of places that I've lived, it looks like the places that have been, you know, that are in that elite 5%, those few neighborhoods that have gone from high poverty to below average poverty, they look like they're pretty much concentrated in and around the downtown areas.
1: Yeah, I think that's the typical pattern is that there are a handful of neighborhoods in metropolitan areas that are usually close to the, to the urban center, to the urban core, to the downtown area that do well. Uh, And then what we see in terms of the growth of these new high poverty neighborhoods is it tends to be spreading out from what were previously the the concentrations of uh, of high poverty neighborhoods and towards, if not actually in uh, the suburban areas.
0: And I know that too, there was something I think a bit misleading where you see rural parcels or neighborhoods. Converting to from that may be poor when they're rural or their farmland are look like they've improved, but that's a bit misleading.
1: Correct? Yeah, there's there are some anomalies in in, particularly in the south where you had some areas that suburbanized that before they were suburban were poor rural areas. Uh, and mm-hmm. And uh you know there was really a dramatic change in both the number of people living there but then then also the poverty rate and and we show those on the map, but we excluded those from our data tabulations
0: If you were looking at this generically, and I know that every city has its own opportunities and and its own set of possibilities if there's if there is energy, if there's revitalization and reinvestment in the core city, it seems to me like the next move you would try to make would be to take that energy or that revitalization and spread it just a little bit farther to the next ring of neighborhoods around the core city building from strength. I mean, is that the way you would look at it?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, that's the pattern that we tend to see is that these neighborhoods that that are rebounding tend to Share some characteristics and be near relatively near one another. So I think that's oftentimes that's where the best opportunities are. That we know that, that there are some spillover and some adjacency effects influence the ability to be successful and, and drive improvement in these neighborhoods. So that's definitely something that I would look to build
0: on. Earlier this summer there was an article that got a lot of attention at City Lab that criticized Buffalo, New York, which was the host of this year's annual meeting of the Congress for the new urbanism, there were charges of gentrification based on new investments in Buffalo's core city neighborhoods. But as you pointed out when we were discussing uh, the article, in 1950, Buffalo had a population of 580,000. By 2000, that number was only 290,000. In other words, half the people of Buffalo had left in 50 years. Other than revitalization and reinvestment, what other options does the city of Buffalo have?
1: I think that's a terrific question. And I think a a lot of the popular discussion of, of gentrification just simply overlooks the fact that these neighborhoods that have been in decline have suffered really severe and wrenching downturns and that not having new development doesn't keep them the way they are. They aren't stable, they aren't viable. Uh, and absent some change, it's highly likely that they'll continue to lose population. And that's you know, really what we see in, in distressed urban neighborhoods is people don't stick around and stick it out, they move to someplace better. And when they do, the neighborhood declines further. So your choice is really not to let things stay the way they are, but really to either make a concerted effort to improve the neighborhood or simply watch it continue to decline.
0: Based on the patterns that you identified in this neighborhood change work, which again, Joe, I I think is an just an amazing piece of work to take 40 years of data at a census tract level and try to understand how poverty has changed. Anyone who cares about cities ought to really pay attention to this piece of work because it teaches us so much about where our focus ought to be. Based on the patterns you identified, is gentrification something we shouldn't be worrying about?
1: i, I put it this way. If we're concerned about the plight of the poor and the urban poor in the United States, Gentrification is, is probably the least of our problems. It's not causing the big increase in poverty that we see. In fact, if anything, it's just the opposite, that we're allowing a lot of other neighborhoods to decline into poverty and to become these neighborhoods of entrenched and concentrated poverty. And if, if anything, and I, I think Myron Orfield at the University of Minnesota put it this way best, It's not that we have too much gentrification, it's that we have too little. And that said, I think there are things we can do in neighborhoods that are changing to preserve a range of of housing options. But I, I also think it's the case that even these neighborhoods that gentrify continue to have much more diverse populations, much more diverse racially, ethnically, and economically than the typical neighborhood in a metropolitan area. So I think taking advantage of the positive energy that's in these neighborhoods and looking for ways to expand opportunity and use it to break this cycle of concentrated poverty is probably the right way to think about tackling this problem.
0: You know, sometimes, Joe, I think a lot of this discussion of gentrification is really driven by not so much about a concern for the poor, although I'm, I'm by no means dismissing that. But I do think a lot in the in the one percent cities you know in the new Yorks, the San Franciscos and other places, housing costs have have risen so much, you know rent and home ownership that people are feeling forced out of neighborhoods i mean it's not it's not so much poor people, but I think it's others in these fast growth cities where costs have gone up so much that there's a lot of pressure. And they're feeling the effects of that. You know, you and I have had this discussion as well, and I know one of the points you've made over and over is that, as Ed Glazer does, sometimes the very people who are concerned about being priced out, and understandably so, are the people who have opposed more building.
1: Absolutely. And I think, you know, what the high and rising price for housing in, in some cities, some, some great and, and very strong cities shows us is that there is is a growing demand for urban living and that we, in economic terms, we have a shortage of great cities. And what the market is telling us through those rising prices is we need to make more. And part of the way we do that is by making every city a better city than it is. And so that's, I think, a very encouraging message for cities around the country. And then we also need to do more to to create more opportunities for the people who want to live in the New Yorks and the San Francisco's and the Washington's, these flourishing urban urban centers. Uh, And the the way we do that is not by standing in the way of creating more housing, but in fact, creating many new opportunities for people to live in those communities as possible. And the paradox is when we do stand in the way of change, it doesn't lessen the displacement. If anything, it increases it because uh, the people who can afford to live in those places will always outbid people with less income. So unless you increase the supply of housing, uh, your displacement problem is in the long run gonna get worse.
0: So I know you'll soon be launching a new website with the support of the Knight Foundation and you're calling it City Observatory, just give us a peek at what you're doing.
1: Yeah, um, we're very excited to be launching City Observatory and thank you again Knight Foundation for supporting it. The focus of City Observatory will be looking at the intersection of talent, opportunity and place and looking at the way that building great places helps attract, develop, and deploy talent in a way that drives both city and national economies and creates greater opportunities for uh, widespread shared prosperity for all Americans.
0: I can't wait for the launch, Joe. When do you expect that to be?
1: We'll be looking forward to launching in September.
0: All right, Joe, thanks so much for being with us on Night Cities. I really appreciate that always. Joe Courtright is principal of Impresa Consulting in Portland. You can follow us on Twitter at hashtag Night Cities and sign up for our new newsletter at nightfoundation.org so you can get the news first on new conversations as soon as they're posted. You've been listening to Night Cities. I'm Carol Coletta.